So for today's fireside chat, uh, we don't have Donna on board, so I'll uh, take over her role for a second here. Um, today we have a new guest, it's Joe. Uh, Joe is the physicist that uh, Donna has mentioned before. And uh, he has asked a couple of questions uh, during previous fireside chats. And today he's here with us. And uh, I've asked him before if he would be willing to kind of uh, do a little one-on-one -on -one with Tom for a few minutes and exchange some ideas and um, views between the two physicists and their path of um, kind of realizing a bigger picture. And maybe, Joe, if you wouldn't mind, uh, just share with us your path kind of starting out as a physicist and how you began to realize maybe physics can explain a lot, but it can't explain all of it. <laughs> uh, thanks, uh, Tom. It's so very nice to meet you. And um, I, I finally completed your three books and uh, I'm deeply grateful that uh, I was able to come across uh, you and the contributions you've made to this, uh, to, to my life, that's for sure. Um, I, I'm a physicist. I work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory um, and put sensors in space. I think my uh, my path with Tom is not too dissimilar. I started off in the uh, Star Wars days, uh, beginning my career, and uh, been involved with um, both experimental and theoretical physics throughout my life. Um, I think fairly early on, um, I was sort of disappointed at the dogma related to uh, that I saw in physics and um, the kind of pushback you got if you tried to bring into the subject of, of consciousness uh, or, or other, um, other alternative realities. Uh, early on in my career, I got involved with meditation and that started changing a, a lot of my world of view. Um, I practice things like Tai Chi and, and also um, Zen Buddhism in an early part of my career. I've always maintained some kind of meditative practice through most of my life. Um, uh, there was a period of time where I think I was drawn more and more into uh, the dogma of physics just by working in that world uh, for, for quite a while. But um, uh, a few years ago, uh, both of my parents passed away um, and I experienced things which I had sort of thought were not possible. I mean, I had heard about uh, psychic or psi-related uh, things, and I had uh, three um, sort of profound experiences that could not be explained at all by physics, uh, nor by my understanding of the world. It sort of re-brought me back full circle to things that I had sort of maybe been more aware of, but chose to forget over time. Uh, when I started trying to understand these things, I came across um, early on some of Dean Radin's work, um, Bob Monroe. Um, I, I actually bought the Monroe Institute course and went through that. Uh, and uh, through all that, I came across Tom, Tom's uh, work. And uh, I think Tom's work helps unify so many different things that I've been trying to put into perspective. So it's sort of uh, like um, a new beginner for me. Well, it sounded like uh, we have some parallels then. You know, we kind of, I also got started, uh, well, you know, if you've read the books, and meditation was my first intro into a larger reality as well. And I guess it's a good, it's a good uh, introduction. I suppose most people who get into uh, at least experiencing the larger conscious system 
find meditation as the doorway. That's kind of the first place. If you're going to get familiar with consciousness, you might as well get familiar with your own consciousness first. That would seem to make sense. And uh, yeah, a whole lot of us got swept up in that Star Wars because that's where the money was and that's where the jobs were. You know, that's where you went. If you, Particularly back when I got out of graduate school in the very early 70s, we were in recession. And for a physicist to find a job was not easy thing to do because physicists just aren't uh, employed in uh, in lots of works of life. At least they weren't then. Now they are seen uh, by industry as being a lot more uh, valuable because they have a lot of skills and talents that cut across uh, many of the engineering and mathematics disciplines and uh, also the programming and the and the modeling uh, physicists are particularly good at because that's what we do is model reality. So when it comes to doing models and sims, physicists kind of show up in that in that category a lot as well. So just about early 70s was when physicists were starting to break into these other jobs and not just be restricted to academia for their careers in a, in a big way. So the Star Wars opened up a whole lot of those of those jobs in the early in the early 70s. Um, so our our uh, our paths are are uh, parallel in some ways, not unsurprising at all. Um, I, what I've been um, over the past several years uh, just come to realize after I had my own personal experiences, um, which I guess people would f- fit under the psi phenomena, uh, you realize that modern physics uh, does not explain those things. There, it's a um, that's things out on the fringe. It's as you say in your books, uh, far from the center, and um, and that was unacceptable from my perspective. I mean, it means that um, there's just a lot of dogma related to physics and what they study, um, and so I have to explore my own <clears throat> um, consciousness. So um, I think your books help put a lot of things into perspective for me. You'll notice. I don't know if you've gone to the. Uh... YouTube videos or not, whether you've gotten that far, but I'd say yes. the most of the most of the science that I do, I've done in the YouTube videos, and that's sort of on purpose. You know, a, a general purpose book for a general purpose audience can't go into a whole lot of you know talks about physics because that would uh, not uh, suit too well with the average reader. But I do get into that in the, in my videos quite often, and that's I did. I found the same sort of thing once I learned to meditate and found out that. There were things there that that I could experience that were real, like the decoding of of software. And it wasn't a matter that I was imagining it. It was a matter that there it was, and it was real. And as far as the science viewpoint of reality, it's it's generally an operational definition. If you can't measure it, do an operation with it, then it either doesn't exist, or if it exists, it's irrelevant. Because if you can't interact with it to make a measurement, then, you know, how could it be relevant? That sort of thing. And I realized that that was a very limiting idea that science had. It, it limited uh, science, and particularly physics being a hard science. They were limited entirely to that area of reality that was, one, measurable, and two, had low uncertainty. And now there are other areas that are measurable, and you know, psychology and sociology and medicine and and a lot of other things are measurable, but they have lots of uncertainty. Therefore, they're the soft sciences that we can only probe 
with statistics. We can't make a direct measurement of anything. So they're not really hard sciences. They don't really fall under the uh, scientific method because it's not true that in the soft sciences that anybody doing the same experiment anywhere will get the same answer. People doing the same experiment, you know, other places will get different answers because it has a lot to do with people who are very uncertain in the, how they will perceive and how they react and what they do. And that whole dimension of our life, I realized, was huge compared to the dimension where things are, are uh, very certain. There's very little uncertainty and they can be measured. That that amounted to maybe a 10 or 20% of the reality we deal with every day when all of our feelings, our emotions, our decisions, the important things that we interact with uh, all the time don't fall into that category. So here we have physics, and in the young physicist's mind, we were modeling the world and everything in it that mattered. And then it turns out that there was a whole lot more in it that mattered that was outside of the scope. And then I began to see physics as a kind of a small subset of a bigger picture. And at that point, I needed to understand the bigger picture. So then I spent a lot of time trying to find out, well, what is this bigger picture that physics is just a small subset of? Because it's, uh, physics obviously wasn't the bigger picture. It was just a piece and not even the most interesting piece. You know, the most interesting piece was the, was the everyday life that you had to live and the decisions you made and the quality of that life. And that was a much more interesting piece of, re of our reality than the piece of, you know, how long does it take this brick to fall, you know, eight feet to the ground? That's, that's sort of interesting, but not nearly as interesting as, should I marry this woman and have children or not? See, that's, a, that's a much more interesting question and much more, uh, you know, the rewards and punishments run a lot deeper than, you know, how long it'll take that brick to hit the ground. So, it, you know, when you look at your life, you realize the things that are really important to you can't be put into this objective hard science that's just they just don't cover that and they themselves you know will will tell you that they don't cover that that that's outside of the scope of science well then science becomes something that works on about you know 10 20 percent of your reality and all the rest of it is left you know well, go figure it out on your own now you have the social scientists the psychologists the sociologists they're trying to fill in some of that area but they also are very limited. They can only do very limited things that their statistics and their experiments can tell them. And they're never quite sure that what they get is right or wrong because, again, they are part of the thing they're trying to measure, which makes the measurements uh, you know, not quite so uh, uh, predictable. There's, it's a uh, subjective science. Sure. It's what people feel inside their minds and then what they decide to report to you and how they choose the words and the way they say it, and all of that is subjective. And then that somehow all that subjective material has to turn into a statistical objective result, and that's not a clear path. So we get, you know, we don't get direct, we don't get the, an, an answer. We get a whole family of possibilities out of the social sciences, and that's about as close as we we get to it. So there's another uh, maybe twenty percent of our lives and what we're doing, there's still a whole lot of it missing as far as what we experience. The, my ability to, to uh, de debug code doesn't fall under 
psychology or sociology or any of those things. It, I guess it would fall under parapsychology, but it's not something that, you know, anybody's likely going to measure or ever, or ever uh, pin down because there's so many variables and so much uncertainty. So these things just become then part of your personal science. You just go figure them out with your own experience. And eventually you figure out what works because you do enough experiments that you know, um, know that you can get consistent results with consistent probing or persistent questions. And eventually with enough experience, you begin to look at your, your probability that what you understand is, is accurate or at least useful and the probability that it isn't. And you go with what's useful and let go of what isn't, and that's kind of what we're left with. And that's what then the bigger science looks like. It has to be subjective because that's where most of our reality is. Consciousness is a subjective thing. And we can only, we can only explain that or learn that or find that truth for ourselves. It's right. not something that I can go out and say, okay, uh, Joe, you know, here's, here's your truth, you know. It's, it's my truth, and because I know all the truth, then it has to be your truth. You know, you can't do that. We're all individuals. It's all subjective, and everybody really has to find their own truth. Now, all I can provide is, a, is kind of a, a framework in yeah. which one can interpret results and make some kind of consistent sense out of how things tie together. But that's it. You know, that's that's basically what I what I offer in my books and videos. People have to still go out and experience it, have that experience, it, have that experience and then take that experience and try to fit it within the structure. And if my structure that I talk about doesn't work, well, find one that does, you know, just do the experiments and figure out a structure that does work. And that's your own big toe. And that's kind of as close as we can get to, quote, the right answer is that we all find our own right answer. And uh, one that makes sense and is logical across the board, because there's a lot of these little right answers that are partially right answers in this particular area, but the logic doesn't really hold up if you you know if you start to move it into a bigger picture. It only seems to make sense in this little picture, and that usually means that you don't have the biggest perspective. There's another bigger picture where things do have to make sense across the board because after all you know it's it's one reality it doesn't keep changing so we need that we need that bigger picture to where it all our ideas of reality need to make sense across the entire spectrum of our experience and when you get to that then you have something that's a more general description of the nature of reality and that's what i've been working on and still working on it you know i i learn things and figure things out all the time so it's a never-ending uh the never-ending process but it's a very rewarding and, and interesting and i think fun process yes i i think the um the uh going into physics uh sort of starts is, is teaching you i went into physics because i was interested in understanding nature but i don't define nature just to be you know, uh, particles and, and uh, the simpler stuff that physics actually tries to address. Um, it's, it's nature in general. So it's a natural extension to try to go understand the role of subjective reality, which is, the, you know, a major part, right? We give meaning to data, right? We give meaning to information. And I'm fascinated with um, the computational sciences and uh, we're, you know, basically the statements are that the, you know, 
the universe computes, I think that there is a slow migration of thought towards uh, trying to understand what is information, how do we interpret it, um, what's a uh, what's its role in consciousness. Uh, you get little glimmers, but I think your your um, your your books and your 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 the architecture you put together helps uh, put together a framework for exploring these things individually. So I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you. Well, I, I, uh, you know, physicists, scientists are coming to this idea that reality is information based more and more. And it seems to be an in kind of an in way of thinking about things. It's, it's suddenly moving from way out on the fringe to, uh, somewhere closer uh, to the center now. And they don't yet understand what the logical implications of that are. All they know is that their experiments can be explained in terms of information and can't be explained any other way. So they're moving that way. But there's there's some logical implications of saying that your reality is computed, that we're living in a simulation. Well, that's one of them. If your reality is based on information, the logic tells you then we're living in a simulation. It's a computed reality. So that's a logical consequence. Another logical consequence is that if this is a virtual reality, we're living in a simulation, then there's some, there's some basic things about virtual reality uh, that we have to accept then if this is a virtual reality. One is that the, the uh, avatar okay, is itself not, not anything more than data on a hard drive. You know, the avatar is just a simulation. The consciousness or the player of that avatar, you know, that's the consciousness, and that logically has to exist outside of the virtual reality. The player can't be in the same reality as, as the avatar. And also the computer that's computing the reality cannot be in the same reality as the avatar. The simulation can't compute itself, so the consciousness and the computer both have to be non-physical relative to the avatar, relative to the virtual world. So these are just logical consequences of a virtual reality. We can see immediately the, the consciousness, the player, and the computer have to be in the same reality frame because they are exchanging data, and you don't just directly exchange data across reality frames. You have to be in the same reality frame. So now we have a computer and a consciousness exchanging data, and the computer on its hard drive in its dynamic simulation is computing this virtual reality, and the player is playing an avatar created by that computer. So these are just some simple logical inferences from a, the fact of saying we are in a virtual reality. You know, if we are in a virtual reality, then we have these conditions that tell us that consciousness is non-physical. The computer is non-physical, given that the virtual reality appears physical to us. So that's what I'm calling physical. You know, the elf thinks that his, his world of Warcraft is a physical reality to the elf. He can't walk through those trees. You know, he drowns if he falls in the water. So if that's what we call physical, then the player and the computer have to be non-physical to the elf. So that's the way it is here. If this is a virtual reality, then consciousness and the computer have to be non-physical to our virtual reality, and they have to be in the same reality frame so they can exchange data. So just those 
three simple logical consequences of being in virtual reality tell you a whole lot about you know the nature of the way reality has to be but now they're all based on this if reality is virtual and now our experiments keep telling us it is you know it is it is so we keep doing these experiments and we just had one that uh, happened i guess now about 2 weeks ago where uh, john walker that's right, John Archibald Walker. Um, he worked with uh, the original uh, double slit guys, you know, with Bohr and, and Heisenberg, and and um, he was contemporary with them, although I think he was the young guy in that crowd, you know, of, of uh, older gentlemen. So it was only sometime in like 2002 or three that John Walker, that, um, that he died. So he was kind of younger than the rest of them, but he's the one that coined the term it from bit, it being all of our reality from bit, meaning, you know, bits from information. And he had a thought experiment that couldn't be done up until just two or three weeks ago. Well, you know, that's when it was published. It probably was done, you know, a year ago. And uh, that experiment was done. And just as, as he, uh, Wheeler, it's not Wheeler, just as he uh, um, predicted it came out, the answer came out in one that you can only explain with this being based on information. So Wheeler was correct in how this experiment would, would turn out. So that's just one more, uh, you know, fact, one more experiment that forces physicists to say, yes, we're living in a, in a computed reality. The logical consequence of is we're living in a virtual reality. The logical consequence is this is a computed reality. The logical consequence is we, the consciousness in the computer, have to be non-physical to our experience inside this virtual reality. So, you know, that's a that's kind of a, a real short of where it is. But that's pretty dramatic. You see, and scientists who are agreeing with this idea, yeah, this is a virtual reality. Yeah, we just got that thing from, uh, um, we just got that experiment done. John Wheeler uh, uh, was right. This looks like it's a virtual reality, but they don't understand those. They're not thinking through what that means, what the logical consequences of that is. And I think that's good because I believe if they understood the logical consequences, they would be they they would never want to admit that indeed this is a virtual reality. They'd want to say it some other way. Yeah, it's based on information, but it's not virtual. Yeah, and of course, that's what it, based on information means. It's a computed reality. So uh, I'm glad that they don't get that uh, just yet. Hopefully, they'll do a few more experiments to where they can't back up out of the idea that it's a virtual reality and uh, then figure out what the logical consequences of that statement uh, is. It's going to be very interesting to see how it evolves. <laughs> yes, I think so, too. We live in interesting times, and uh, I really pleased that I live long enough to uh, to see all this actually coming to fruition, you know, seeing that uh, that uh, physics is finally getting to the point where their experiments are telling them that reality is virtual. Right. It's only a matter of time. You see, that's that before you never knew when this this uh, ball would ever start rolling. But once it gets to a lot of physicists taking that seriously, the ball is rolling. And there's nothing that's going to stop it. It's, you know, because that's the way reality is. You know, it's better physics. Right. So eventually it's going to, it's going to, 
it's going to win. That concept will come out on top. They'll look back at um, physical matter reality uh, researchers as being primitive. <laughs> yes. At some time. <laughs> yeah, well, it may not be that long. You know, it, know. Could be, it could be a decade or two decades if we're really, really lucky. Or it could be 100 years if, we're, if we drag our feet as long as possible. But eventually, that's going to happen. And we're going to look back on the, on the early 2000s and say, boy, those... Those people were just one step out of the cave. You know, they, uh, they really couldn't, they just couldn't get that bigger picture. I mean, right there it was in front of their face and they just kept, uh, you know, denying right. it and uh, right. just couldn't get it. But right. yeah, that's the way, that's the way eventually the history will see it, but right. not, not, uh, not today. No, no, but it's happening pretty fast. I mean, uh, just in the time of your career and my career, um, I, I think a lot being driven by, uh, computation right the you know us understanding um more and more about computation and information it seems to be exp exponentially accelerating at the moment yes yes and and our ability to even think about it is getting better i've right. just uh, in the last six months or a year i've been made aware of programming virtual realities now has taken a whole new turn it used to be that the programmers had to uh write code to put everything in the program you know every tree every flower every bush every elf you know they had to sit down make a model and uh artists would draw it you know programmers would then make equations that would replicate the pictures and uh pictures were made and duplicated and modified and spread around but anything everything was programmed that's that's the old way of making models now the new way of making virtual realities is you have generalized uh constraints a rule set, if you will, and then you just let that rule set create however it does. And those rule sets start to build fractal processes based on the rule set. See, the rule set is the fractal engine, and it starts creating these processes. So people in these games go off into a new part of the map. Programmers don't have to, don't have to program what's on that map. It just, it just evolves. It just happens. But it happens in a way that's consistent with the rest of the map. And so that if anybody walks into that area, they're going to see the same thing. If they look at the same place, you know, they'll see the same thing. And it's, uh, it's a different way of, of doing it. So the programmers aren't actually programming the piece parts in virtual realities anymore. They're just, they're just producing the rule set and letting the rule set evolve the virtual reality. Well, that's kind of the way it works. Right. And why are they doing that? Because it's so much more efficient. That's you right. know, programming every blade of grass is a terribly laborious job and takes a lot of resources, and a lot of people, and a lot of money. Whereas if you just have a rule set and let the rule set go do stuff, well, the computer works for free almost. You know, it works 24-7 and uh, doesn't take coffee breaks. You know, it doesn't need to go to the bathroom. It doesn't have to be fed except electricity. And it just goes and generates the stuff, you know, a thousand times less expensive in the resources required to do it. So why is, why does that turn out to be the, the, the good way to do it? Well, for the same reason it turned out for the good way for our reality to be made that way. You know, our reality sort of works that way too, because it's efficient. That's why it, and we're now learning how to copy that. So we're starting to, in a, in a simple way, in a very simple way, we're beginning to see how to make our processes more efficient. And the more efficient they are, the more they start looking like the way reality is made.
So now, 20 years from now, when all the kids and programmers are very familiar with this idea of building worlds with rule sets and probability, you know, the concepts that I have in my big toe will sound like, you know, sound like baby stuff. You know, it'll be like, yeah, you know, and any high school kid would get that. You know, I mean, that's, that's, that's so easy. You know, that's such an easy concept. But that may not only, you know, that may even be a decade or, you know, some years away because this stuff moves pretty fast. So the, the, the infrastructure that helps people understand it is also just coming up around us to help push it. Besides the fact the physicists being shoved around by their experiments in this, in this direction. Right. Uh, we're at, uh, at JPL, we're working on something called artificial generalized intelligence, which is uh, very, very basically equivalent to what you're just talking about, because you want to be able to have, say, a rover on another planet um, thinking for itself, right? Um, doing the experiments, understanding from its environment. Um, and we have these AGI type of modules, which are basically rule sets and let them evolve. Um, uh, and we are applying them to a diff- lot of different problems. Uh, uh, recently, I was at a conference and uh, Elon Musk, you know, the CEO of SpaceX, said that his biggest concern at the moment is um, the fact that artificial intelligence and artificial generalized intelligence is getting to such a place where if we're not careful, uh, since we've got a distributed set of neurons now, basically known as the internet, you could spread AGI or AI type of things uh, across that. So you can't shut it down. I mean, it sounds like things from the Terminator, right? You know, worried about that. Uh, but uh, he's expressing that that's his number one concern, um, that things are done more consciously about it. So he actually has contributed $10 million towards an institute to uh, be more conscious of what we're releasing and what we're putting out there. But, I mean, you, you do talk about this in your book, uh, that it's not that far away from um, you know, AI, AI guy, right? It's not that far away. Yeah, no, it's not. You know, once we get the idea that AI guy isn't somebody that you program, it's right. something that evolves out of potential possibility, and then you just let it evolve. It's not a program thing. You know, people keep trying to program, you know, a consciousness, and you don't program consciousness. You just program an environment in which consciousness can evolve, and then it, it just evolves. That's a that's a different concept, and evidently that's been done in some uh, university uh, computer labs where they have large programs that have been evolving now for some years. And uh, at least the people that work with these, they use the word consciousness when they describe their their programs, but they're consciousness on a very small level still. They're not consciousness like a human being's conscious. They may be conscious more like a dog or or uh, you know, some sort of consciousness like that. It seems to have low-level awareness and capability of making uh, its own choices. So a little free will starting to creep in at a small decision space, but that's where we start. Yes. So, yeah, we're, we're right on. The idea that it's going to take 100 years to get there, I think, is probably overestimating. We ha- we're coming at it from so many angles that it's going to get clearer and clearer that uh, – you know, well, shoot, just from when I published my books a little more than a decade ago, if you thought virtual reality was a really smart idea, you know, you were one of a dozen people on the planet. And now that's not the case. There's a dozen people in every physics department that thinks virtual reality is a good idea. So that's just one decade. And right. this thing, this thing accelerates. It's not, uh, it's not a linear function at all. All these things adding together, all these directions. I, I would not be surprised in 
two decades to be in a totally different world than the one we're in now, as far as yeah. people understanding. Yeah, I think there's strong potential for that, for sure. Yeah. Well, if you're ever out um, in California, please let me know. I'd love to, uh, I, you've probably been to JPL in the past, but I'd love to uh, have you come by. So. Yeah, yeah, I get to uh, Irvine every once in a while. Uh -huh. how, far that, how far away is that? Uh, one hour at the most. Yeah. So okay. I don't know if you've had a chance in your past to, uh, uh, I know you did some stuff with NASA if you've been out to JPL, but uh, I'd give you a tour and show you around. That'd be fun. I'd like to, yeah. I'd like to do that. Uh, yeah. So what city is the JPL in? Uh, it's in Pasadena. Yeah, that's what I thought. Yeah, Rose Bowl. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would be fun. Yeah, I'd like to do that. Uh, JPL is a pretty uh, famous place. Yes, they've, it is. They've done a lot of uh, very uh, unique and, and uh, groundbreaking work at JPL. And it's, it's been around a long time, but it's generated a lot of neat science and a lot of neat uh, uh, applications of science and engineering in the, in the decades that it's, that it's been there. Yes. And um, since our mission is the robotic exploration of space, uh, AI and AGI sort of goes hand in hand, you know, autonomous systems yeah. and things like that, because we're not flying people in space. We're putting robots in space. So. Oh, that makes so much more sense. Right. Yeah. <laughs> putting the people yeah. in space takes a huge amount of money to make sure those people survive. Right. And those people add just a little bit, you know, as far as their decision-making capability, what we can do now is, is uh, with robots is so much more cost effective than trying to yes. put people into space that uh, it's a shame that we haven't shifted the bulk of the budget toward the unmanned space the manned right. space though that's that makes good press yes, and good press makes uh, makes the program popular and the program being popular gets the funding and that's kind of why i think those dollars are put there as a uh, more of marketing investment than actually the return in scientific and engineering uh, investment Right, exactly. I mean, just the uh, time scales alone. Um, uh, I just recently were talking about Voyager being at the edge of our solar system. Um, by the time it gets to the uh, some small percentage of the gravitational attraction of the sun, it'll be another fifty thousand years. And it may be at the heliopause right now. When you start realizing that it took thirty-seven years for it to get to where it is, and it's going about a million miles per day, it's unlikely that human beings. Um, are going to make that journey. I think it's uh, maybe inner space will get us out there and maybe we should yeah. stick with robots, but you know. Yeah. Well, at that point, it's such a, it's a very, uh, even communications is problematical. Yeah. You know, you got time delays, significant time delays between when commands are given and commands are executed. That's right. And um, it's, uh, it becomes real problematical and geez, that's just in, that's still in our neighborhood. You know, we haven't, right. we haven't, we haven't gone out of our little small town that we live in here in the, that's right our solar system. That's right. That's right. So it's a 17 hour, uh, one way, uh, to talk to Voyager and it's, um, 15 minute round, you know, 15 minutes to Mars. Right. So you need robots, you need autonomous systems. Right. Yeah. Or you expect those people that go out there are not coming back. <laughs> they're going to have to get along and settle and uh, make colonies as they go, because otherwise right. there, there's no way they're, they're coming back. At least not, that's right not the, in their lifetimes. Right. right. There is a mission uh, right now for, um, I guess some people out of Europe are funding. Um, they're trying to fund a mission to Mars where you would, you're not coming back. Right. So yeah. it's like going to the new world. Right. Right. 
I didn't volunteer. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be a tough assignment. That would be a very tough assignment. Yeah, people, right, right. yeah, we have been in the high tech world so long that I think we no longer appreciate how hard it is to right. you know go out right. and uh, you know start a new colony someplace without any you know without a reliable supply line. Right, that's right, uh, that's right. a really hard thing to do, and our ancestors were pretty uh, brave and courageous to take that on. Right, and, that's uh, right. The, and they they uh, their their supply line was though only what a couple of months long. They that's could right. still get another ship come in in a couple of months, but once you're on Mars, you're on your own. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you, you, you can't expect you can't expect ships to keep coming and giving you things you need. You're, you're that's right. Of, Stuck there. Stuck there. SpaceX just had an explosion this morning. They were trying to um, send resupplies to the uh, space station. So just the space station alone in the supply chain. Um, space is hard, as they say. So yeah, very hard. Well, guys, are we boring all the rest of you with our with our techie talk? Uh, <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> apologies. <laughs> no, no, I'm just looking around, seeing that everybody's eyes are still focused or glassed over or what. But the. Uh, Okay. Yeah. Well, if anybody from the group has has a question to either one of them, I just have a I just have a quick question. I'm curious, Joe, if in your experience you've also seen in the mainstream, and I know that you said historically, you know, the dogma of physics had made an impression on you, but now in recent times, do you feel like now and then you are coming across or starting to come across individuals who are, uh, you know, becoming more familiar with virtual reality theory or, or you know, or consciousness based ideas? I'm just curious because you know, I work in business. I did work. I work in the nuclear field, and uh, certainly I work with engineering people every day. And uh, at least where I am, there's no visibility on this kind of thing, you know. But at JPL, I'm just curious. I mean, that's a pretty front edge institution. Do you ever come across individuals you work with pretty commonly that are aware of these kind of things? Uh, yeah, it's a, that's a very good question. Um, uh, prior to uh, discovering Tom's works and even Bob Monroe's works, I was watching um, Morgan Freeman in one of those Through the Wormhole episodes uh, a few years ago, and there was uh, an episode on Is There a Sixth Sense? Uh, and one of the vignettes in there was uh, a physicist, uh, a computational physicist that I think that works at JPL, um, that was being interviewed about digital realities and is this a simulation? Um, it was sort of the first time I was wrapping my head around that. Um, and I've met him since then. Um, it's not a mainstream thing. Um, uh, JPL is, of course, focused on their mission and things like that. But you will find, um, you know, open-minded thinkers. Um, you don't have lectures typically coming through and talking about these things. Um, as Tom alludes in his books, and Bob Monroe used to say, we're sort of still uh, we're at the edge, right, um, in, in, in being open-minded enough to think about these things. Um, but there are a few. I've come across uh, a few people um, uh, at work and in the science community that um, their own work has led them to a place uh, to uh, try to understand these things more. I think there's a general trend uh, there. I, yet, I, yet I still find a lot of computational or uh, the autonomy guys uh, believe in uh, consciousness is created by the human mind, right? That's a common mm-hmm. thread also, right? The, the uh, fact that consciousness arises from the brain, right? Um, oh. um, but uh, it's a slowly evolving thing. I mean, bumping the people here and there. Thank yeah, you, well, Joe. That's, that's interesting. 
Yeah, once you have that idea that uh, this is a virtual reality, though, that concept that consciousness arises from the brain suddenly is illogical. Mm-hmm. We don't understand that yet. Anyhow, uh, I, I would uh, say that if you just talk to individual physicists as individuals, you probably find a fairly large number that were more open-minded than you would expect. But if you talk to physicists in groups or at official settings or the things they do that show, like uh, Joe said, you know, the, the speakers that come around and give seminars and that kind of thing, then you will see very little of it. it uh, everything is buttoned down and stays very close to the dogma. You talk to individuals, you'll find a much freer environment, but you're still going to find a minority that will, you know, be comfortable talking about larger realities. That's uh, still going to be a fairly small minority, but it's it's a lot more than you would think if you just look at the kind of the everyday picture at workplace. It's pretty it's pretty grim as far as uh, you know how much the dogma controls everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, you start talking about people individually away from the office and you'll find there there's a lot of people who have, you know, think bigger pictures. Um, physics by itself tends to be kind of a, of a, a stretched imagination or an expressed, a stretched view of the world because our modern physics is not, it, it's for a long time, it's lost the idea of it being intuitive. You know, yes, this works because that that makes good sense. That's how everything works. Physicists are very used to saying, yeah, this is how it works. But we have, you know, it's it's strange. So strangeness to physicists is is pretty common. So they're kind of open to strangeness, but not in public. (laughs) Closet strangeness. (laughs) Yes, more closet strangeness. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And and, um, as you mentioned before, uh, there's dogma and dollars, right? So you receive mm-hmm. funding to work in various areas, and those areas tend to be uh, center or a little bit, a little bit right of center um, to try to push new ideas. But um, when you get when you do corner people um, and you have deeper discussions, um, uh, there is of course a, a common um, uh, thread out there. And I think when you go, they do surveys of people that say, just let's just take psychic or phenomena or para, paranormal phenomena. If you interview the public, 60-something percent, 68% of the public will say they believe that such a thing happens, whether they say it because they have experienced it or not. So that's much greater than a minority. Um, but but um, in the science community, it tends to be uh, dogma and dollars, and uh, uh, you have to get these people alone. So. Thank you. That's very interesting. And I, I relate to what Tom has said in other videos where when he first emerged with this theory, he kind of expected that, hey, once he brought it to the table, if it made sense, it would be naturally considered and adopted. And uh, certainly Tom's model does make a lot of sense. I mean, it does. And I found in my own, at least my personal life, that uh, I have brought Tom's model and other ideas from my own personal experience. I've had certain non-physical experience. I brought it to people, and if it makes sense, it's that's not enough. <laughs> you know, the, the ego plays an important part in the whole picture, and that's one of the reasons I very much like Tom's model. In fact, uh, not to go on too much of a tangent here, but Tom's the first video I ever saw was Tom's Spain lecture, and it was maybe thirty or forty minutes into it, and he said at the time I had a very different I had a very different understanding of reality, and I had a pretty specific uh, religious belief system, and uh, he said something simple that. 
know, something about, um, you know, what you believe is not going to get you anywhere fundamentally important. And when he said it, I felt a little bit of a ping, like a, uh, an uncomfortable feeling in myself. And when I felt it, I, my intuition kind of just real gently nudged me and said, now, why did you feel that? You know, there must be a reason that you felt that ping. And then I followed that to the nth degree over many years now <laughs> to be here. And it's changed my life. But I find that uh, many are not willing to take that step. Um, you know, long story short, it's a big challenge, you know, and especially amongst people who are uh, dug into the materialist paradigm every day at work. And like you said, dollars are, it, you know, really is about the money. I'm, I'm familiar with that. So anyway, that's very encouraging. I would think even if even two out of 100, you know, of the people that you work with every day were really considering these ideas, maybe not even adopting them, but really considering them, that would be a sign of big progress, I would think. So thank you. That's that's very interesting. I think you'd get probably a higher a higher rate than two out of a hundred. I agree. You'd probably you probably get more like uh, out of a hundred, maybe you know fifteen, something like that. Ten, not just two. But again, you have to talk to them individually. They're not all going to get up in a conference and and you know talk about how virtual reality means that the consciousness doesn't come from the brains. You know, nobody's going to say that in public, even though it's just trivial logic, because that's you know. The problem is that, that we are, we humans, like a lot of other uh, critters, are very uh, much herd animals. We, mm. we are fearful if, of things that are different. Something that's different scares us because we don't know where it might go. We're afraid of the uncertainty. So as herd, herd animals, we don't want to be seen as foolish and the way a herd animal is seen as being okay and not foolish is if he's just like every other herd animal you see conformity is safe conformity is belonging conformity all your peers will pat you on the back and say you're okay and you pat them on the back and say they're okay now everybody's ego feels good and that's the way it is we live in a in a sea of of fear and the funders don't want to put out money to some organization and have somebody come back later and say, why would you fund those, you know, those idiots? Look, they're, they're doing all this crazy stuff and you gave them money. You know, now suddenly they look bad, you see. Now they have risk. Nobody wants to take risk. When you're in the herd, you're risk adverse. You don't do anything that somebody might come back and call you a fool or call you that you're incompetent or something else. So the safe way to go is to just do like everybody else, think the same thoughts, feel the same feelings, don't go out on any kind of limbs, don't make waves, don't stand out, and that's safe when you're you know, part of a herd. The, the ones that stand out in a herd are the ones that are shunned. They're the ones that uh, you know, pushed off to the, to the edges. So it's just the way we are. You know, it's not that individuals are just stupid and can't get it. It's that we have this fundamental instinctual herd mentality thing going on in us, and we're we're frightened to be different. And when we see others that are different, it frightens us. So that's the problem. So that's why it takes so long. It's a slow process where people have to kind of get adjusted to this step. Then they get a little adjusted to the next step, and you know, and a, a century goes by, and they've taken the whole step. Hmm. But these days, time moves faster because events move faster and people are exposed to more things faster and information travels faster. So the, the herd accepting differences is starting to move faster, too. 
And uh, I think that there's a lot of people out there. There's a lot of there's a lot of cows in the in the herd that have different ideas, but they're not going to express them. Okay. So you may find that even 20 or 30 percent of the population, if you got them off alone, might be, you know, willing to talk to you about these ideas, but they're not going to they're not going to say it in public. And they're not probably even going to say it to you unless they know you well enough that you're not going to call them a fool. So that's yeah. what we have to overcome. It's just this social inertia. It's the psychological inertia that we have to get over. And that's the that's why it takes so long. It's not just intellectual. If it was intellectual, you'd present something, people would look at it and say, that's logical. All right, let's go with that. You see, but that's scary because it's different. Therefore, let's not go with that because if it turns out wrong, then I won't, you know, I'll be a fool. And if it turns out right, I'll still be safe. I'll, we'll get it later. You know, so that's that's really what's happening. Yeah, I'll just add that that reminds me of what I've seen in the religious setting. And that is if you get the individuals off to the side, many individuals, I, I think, at least where I've come from, will consider non-mainstream religious ideas. And they usually have a broader viewpoint than what is taught from whatever organization they're in. Obviously, there's a lot of different uh, belief systems out there. But individually, one-on-one, you can usually make a lot more uh, you know, logical progress or find out that many more ideas are being considered than what is being considered by the whole group. So that's a good point, though. And, and um, I'll, I'll let, it, let us get back to the questions here in one moment. But um, I just also want to, again, say thank you, Tom, because you know, it, it does take a bit of bravery, not only for us who are, you know, considering your model, but you had to be brave. And everybody here has had their choices to, you know, consider these rather non-mainstream ideas. And it is, it can be frightening. It is scary. You know, I have, I have family members who do not approve of, you know, the ideas. And I know that, um, it, you know, like you said, if you step aside from, step outside the mainstream idea of the group, you are, you know, you're, you're put into a certain place. So anyway, I appreciate all those who contribute here. I appreciate Justin doing the work to edit the videos and Oliver for setting this up. And, um, and Tom, very much you. And I know you, you get thanked a lot and you're probably pretty numb to it by now, but you really do need to receive the thanks because you have made a lot of important decisions. And maybe, maybe I'm just one, one part of the feedback you're getting from PMR here from doing a good job. But uh, I really do appreciate it, and I think that your impact is very significant. So, uh, thank you very much. You're welcome. But I'm just doing like everybody else. I I do what I have to do, you know. And what I have to do is tell it, is call it the way I see it. I can't do it any other way. It's not that I've gone out and made a real tough choice. It's <laughs> I don't have any more choice, you know. It's just the way it has to be done. So that's the way you know I do it. And chips fall where they may, and that's kind of life. But. That's actually that, that's actually a good scientific attitude. You know, scientists are supposed to have that attitude. And I guess as I was being trained and learning to become a scientist, I just really internalized that idea that uh, it's the truth that matters and everything else will just have to work out on its own. Tom, when, when you were um, uh, in mainstream, working in the mainstream, um, uh, uh, how much did you share your, your meditation practice with people? I mean, uh, it was probably... You, you did your job and you kept some of that personal because if people weren't receptive to talking about it, uh, you know, you're yes, outside my, the mainstream, right? Yeah. My, my rule was to 
not bring up a subject that was, you know, outside the mainstream. But if somebody brought it up to me, then I would discuss it. But they had to start the conversation. I, I wouldn't go and say, hey, want to hear about this or you want to know about that? You know, have you read this book? You know, I, I wasn't going to do any of that. But uh, if somebody asked me, but in my years of being mainstream scientists, I'd say almost never did anybody ask me because, like you say, when you're in that work environment, everything is focused on just just that. And it's not until you get in a personal environment. So I'd say I had a, a low profile as to my second job in consciousness research. I was just a physicist. Um it didn't work like that when I was at NASA, because by that time I had already written the books and published them. Had uh, been on the uh, what was it um, the show that goes on in the middle of the night? Um, coast to coast. Coast to coast. Yeah, I was on coast to coast in the middle of the night, and so here I'm working in NASA. And the way I typically worked in NASA or as a consultant is I would have several, generally young people who were actually the, the hands-on programmers and would work the programs, you know, do the coding, run the programs, that kind of stuff. And what I did was write the algorithms. So I had a, a, a group of these young people who worked with me at NASA, and I hadn't been there more than six months or so when one of them comes up to me and, and taps me on the shoulder and says, are you the Tom Campbell? <laughs> and I said, well, maybe. You know, who, what, what are you talking about? And they, they said, well, I heard Tom Campbell on Coast to Coast. And, and I'm thinking, uh-oh, cover blown. And what it turned out was all very positive. So within 15 minutes of that conversation, all the young people, you know, in the group that worked for me all knew that I was the Tom Campbell, you know, that had been on Coast to Coast. And they were all very interested you know, uh, to ask questions, you know, they were very open. Um, there wasn't any kind of negativity or hostility or that's crazy or any of that stuff. Some of them may have thought that, but basically everybody was open, had questions to ask. And, uh, so it was a very positive thing. So that was the only time in my physics career, uh, that, uh, my cover was blown basically. And people actually realized how strange, you know, my ideas were, and it turned out very positive. It yeah. was, uh, it was a real good, uh, it was a real good thing. The only downside of it was I had a hard time going to the bathroom or going to lunch because I always ran into people who had another 20 questions that needed to be answered. So it, uh, that lasted for a little while and then that led up too. but, uh, yeah, it was, it was fun. But now these were all very young people. You know, these people were all, you know, 20 something maybe the oldest were 30 something, but uh, these were not people who'd been around in the career for 20 or 30 years. These were all people at the beginnings of their, of their careers. And they had all spent hours sitting at uh, video games with uh, virtual reality. So those ideas were common, you know, within their, within their experience. And it was just a, uh, a very positive experience with, uh, with my one uh, time that I, I uh, blew my cover. I suppose they were they were open minded, uh, of course, and so the the minority, uh, the the people that are open minded, uh, is sort of the open minded minority. Um, uh, it's natural for them to discover you because they're inquiring or listening, um, mm. just like I'm not 
concerned about colleagues from JPL listening. If they listen to this, that means they're searching, right? And right. so, so we'll 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 see. <laughs> yes. So, so my my uh, uh, guess that there was maybe you know out of a hundred there'd be ten or fifteen or so that would that would uh, have these have interest in these ideas. If we limit that just to the people under 30 or under 35, <laughs> the percentage would go way up. That's right. <laughs> which, is the, which is the good news. Right. You know, it, w- it would right. go way up. But if you talk to the people who are over 50, that percentage would probably go way down, you know, That's because right. this is just really far out crazy stuff to anybody who's, who's uh, you know, over 50. Right. You know, so what am I doing here, right? I'm, I'm over 70. <laughs> but uh, I guess it always takes a few of us. <laughs> 